0: This is an ABC podcast. Science. Yes, it's science fiction. Welcome, Natasha Mitchell here for Culture, Science and Spice. If you've been catching our mini-series, Future Uterus, and you can check out the last two podcasts for that, I started with pure sci-fi, right, And a world where babies are gestated in artificial wombs called baby pouches and where if you opt for a so-called natural pregnancy... You're rendered an irresponsible outcast. Then came a wild true story with Lolita in Sweden, who's one of the world's first successful uterus transplant recipients. Well, today in this episode, the future has landed. We are taking a peek inside a 3D printed artificial ovary.
1: It is a product of seaweed. It's actually the thickener in ice cream. If you eat a Nutri-Grain bar, it is one of the prime ingredients in that cereal bar. Uh, but it also can be used in medicine because you can form it into gelatinous-like balls that have structural integrity. I love the idea that it all started with one rat yes, ovary. Yes, that's right. One <laughs> rat ovary can change a life. It's incredible, three-day
0: printed ovaries. We're also building an artificial worm. that works just like a real one. Now, you can imagine that's no mean feat. What a woman's body makes on its own is awesome. So what can go wrong with trying to engineer a womb?
2: Um, everything, really.
0: This is Matt Kemp, Associate Professor and Head of the Perinatal Research Laboratories at the Women and Infants Research Foundation in Perth.
2: You sort of liken this to a, a game of snakes and ladders, really. So you take a couple of steps forward and then you go back about three.
0: But after much trial and error, behold.
2: So you'd be looking down at a large, heavy grade, and we'll call it a plastic bag because that's probably the, the easiest way to visualise it.
0: In collaboration with Japanese engineers, Matt Kemp's team has built and are testing an artificial worm.
2: It's almost like a big clear plastic cushion really that's filled to a reasonably high pressure with their artificial amniotic fluid. And in the middle of that you'll see our lamb which looks like it's it's sleeping. It, it makes a few unconscious foetal movements which is what we want because that's what a normal foetus does. So they. They kick their legs around a little bit and they wag their tails they drink the amniotic fluid from time to time which is which is really important
0: yes you are imagining it right there's a small developing lamb a baby sheep gestating inside this see-through plastic womb
2: and then when you look down with the umbilical quarters you'll see our catheters which are connected to that and feeding out from that to the gas exchange devices and you'll be able to see the blood circulating Uh, through that so when it comes out of the fetus to the oxygenation blocks it's quite dark in colour and then when it's oxygenated the colour changes quite remarkably and it it returns uh, oxygenated uh, to the fetus. So it's an entirely self-contained system.
0: But are the lambs cognisant of what's going on?
2: They're asleep for all intents and purposes. We don't think they have a particularly strong appreciation or any appreciation of what's going on as far as they're concerned. As best we can tell they have no idea that they're not still in the uterus and they sort of exhibit all of the the fetal movements that we see on ultrasound to the same sort of degree but they um they certainly do a lot of drinking which surprised me
0: we don't hear any little bat or anything like that they're just too young for that
2: that's right well and, and of course their their lungs and their airways are full of uh, full of fluid. Yeah. so they um they i don't think they could they're
0: wholly reliant on your gas exchange system as their lungs
2: 100% <laughs> reliant yeah
0: so as you're measuring and observing, tell me what it was like for you, as a scientist, watching a huh? lamb in an artificial womb, in a bag.
2: Oh, uh, <laughs> well, exhausting.
0: This is a 24-7 operation, just like a premature baby ward in a hospital, only here the babies are sheep. Uh, surreal? No. Uh, it is it uh, surreal?
2: It is surreal. It's, uh, to be fair, it's the sort of thing that becomes normative quite quickly. I guess we we get very much focused on making sure that the welfare of these animals is being really carefully protected and we're obviously then very focused on making sure they stay in as good a health as possible by uh, playing with all of the the measures and analytes we're looking at
0: a lamb in a bag gestating and growing just as it might in its mama's uterus it's a visceral scene to imagine isn't it and i'm wondering if you saw a photo of a similar experiment by a team at the children's hospital of philadelphia two years ago that was perhaps the first time the world outside of science had really witnessed a functioning artificial womb. There's good reason for this work. Last month, what some claim is the world's tiniest baby to survive went home with his parents in Japan after five months in hospital. This little boy was born weighing, get this, just 268 grams. Babies born extremely prematurely like this, say between 22 and 24 weeks, are barely viable. Their tiny, immature lungs just don't cope well with oxygen or mechanical ventilation in a humidity crib. And if they do survive, they can experience developmental and health complications. I really feel like I was one of the lucky ones. I was born at 28 weeks, so two months preemie, but it was touch and go back
2: then. Certainly in high resource environments like, like Australia, when you get through to 27, 28 weeks, that picture starts to change really quickly. And that is almost certainly to do with some big changes in the ability of the lung and the cardiovascular system to adapt to breathing air. Now outcomes for those babies are hugely better than what they are just a few weeks earlier. and so the the premise that we're working on really is that if we can develop a system where we can bridge these extremely extremely preterm babies just for a couple of weeks, you know two or three weeks, up to twenty seven, twenty eight weeks, there's probably a really good chance that we could transition them onto onto some existing technologies like the ones that are currently available and have some really good outcomes.
0: So rather than transferring babies straight from their mother's uterus to a humidity crib, could they be treated like a developing fetus still and placed in an artificial womb environment, a unique life support system, until their body is ready to be born? This whole effort, though, does begin with the Humidicrib.
3: Fascinating story, the crib story.
0: Bioethicist Dr Evie Kendall from Deakin University.
3: So if you look at it, uh, it arose in the maternity hospitals in Paris. It was the inspiration of uh, the zoo, actually. So uh, we had scientists going to the zoo saying, oh, how do you get these uh, little chicks to develop? And they saw the incubator nest there and thought, I could do that with a human infant. Because back in the day, of course, this is uh, late 1800s, if a baby was born prematurely, they'd wrap it up in blankets, put it in a basket and hope for the best. And of course, incubator technology is just a very sophisticated version of keep the baby warm hope for the best what's really interesting is the socio-political side of that when prematurity was seen as a threat particularly to the French military they were losing their fighting soldiers because they were losing so many infants uh, to prematurity was decided we needed more people to grow up become soldiers, so that became a political motivation to improve the outcomes for premature infants. But it wasn't always
0: seen as a good thing, was it?
3: Not at all. The early examples coming through America actually hit up against social Darwinism. The idea being that the premature infants uh, were weak and therefore we shouldn't try to help them and of course we wouldn't refer to a premature infant in those ways now but of course back in the day the idea was if they were strong enough they would survive uh, but they didn't need any help. And it's interesting that popular culture actually saved the technology there. So the reason the incubators actually came to the US was part of sideshow attractions. So uh, they were medical marvels things people would come to uh, a circus to see so part of the the story was they had nurses that would have little tiny infants in their hand and they'd have a wedding ring in their other hand and they'd put the wedding ring all the way up the arm of the infant to demonstrate just how tiny it was and there were a number of scandals regarding how they got the infants where they came from and whether they really were as premature as they were claiming now of course we don't really have a lot of evidence uh, regarding that part of history it's a little bit dark
0: And Evie Kendall wrote a book called Equal Opportunity and the Case for State-Sponsored Ectogenesis. Yes, that was the wild topic of her PhD. Full-blown ectogenesis. That's the prospect that we might one day use an artificial womb to replace pregnancy altogether. So from go to woe, conception to birth. And surely that is just pure science fiction, as we mused on in the first episode of this series. Well, Evie Kendall argues we could already be part of the way there with efforts to build an artificial womb to incubate ultra premature babies.
3: I think that ectogenesis will kind of sneak up on us. It'll be serendipitous uh, that we suddenly design something that can incubate from 22 weeks and then it'll be 20 weeks. And I think that's really why we need the ethical evaluation now because if we're trying to say there's a radical difference in the rights of a 22-week fetus versus a 21-week fetus, it's really hard to justify that in any consistent way. So if we are saying viability is the point at which you have some rights... Fine, except viability has already dramatically changed. How are we defining viability? Is it your ability to survive with no intervention at all? Or is it your ability to survive with humidity crib technology? or your ability to survive and have a high likelihood of health after that incubation? Because that's a different question again. And then if we end up having tech that can keep pushing that boundary, particularly if it's coupled with technology that's pushing the boundary on the other end, on the IVF, let's grow the embryo in the petri dish end, we are going to find a point at which we are pushing up against the same thing.
0: Do you think that's inevitable?
3: I think it probably is. And... What we need to be in front of are the social and ethical issues. So, again, it's something that we need to talk about even if the technology doesn't end up being viable.
2: To my view, I think that's like hearing hoofbeats and thinking that you're being approached by zebras. I think that's (laughs) spectacularly unlikely.
0: As we heard, Matt Kemp's team is building an artificial womb with a focus on Premier babies. He thinks bioethicist Evie Kendall's suggestion is pie in the sky.
2: I think those sorts of musings are perhaps a misrepresentation of the technology that's being developed. And certainly we think a lot about this usually late at night as we're sitting watching lambs in their bags. But certainly from, from our perspective, or well, certainly from my perspective, I, I don't think that particular application where a woman's uterus is replaced by this technology is uh, something that anyone needs to be concerned about. We're not building something that has the capacity to initiate a development of fetus from, from a couple of cells upwards. You could probably take pretty much every technology that's been developed in the past hundred years and, and take perhaps a, a, a slightly cynical slippery slope view of, of what you might use that technology for. The reality is that there, there will be a physical limit to uh, what you can catheterize, because you do have to catheterize, you know, put tubes into these fetuses and we will get to a point where the the fetus is simply too small and the heart is simply too weak for that to be viable. So for, for anyone who was concerned about uh, you know, replacing the the female uterus with this uh, matrix-like system where we grow babies, I don't think that's anything that anyone has to worry about because it's just, to, to my understanding it's simply not possible.
3: Most scientists don't want to get the the label of being Dr Frankenstein or engaging in the brave new world or Gattaca or whatever it is. And for that reason, they divorce themselves from science fiction because it's safer. Mm. It is much safer to focus on the technical side and to try and get rid of all those associations with, as we've already discussed, a predominantly dystopian vision of a technology.
0: They don't want to surround their work with a feeling of fear and anxiety. They are all about saving premature babies. But
3: the problem, of course, is most people on the street aren't going to read the medical literature, but they will be familiar with pop culture. They will be familiar with the science fiction narratives. So we can either try and avoid them entirely and lose the educational opportunity, or we can try and engage the public in discussions using what they're familiar with and the language that they already know. And perhaps we can find the good elements and we can have a critical discussion of those dystopian elements as a warning for what we need to do now to prevent that
0: happening. Evie Kendall. But on science fiction, let's come back to the science of the moment. How do you even approach the problem of engineering a womb from scratch? Scientists first started trying back in the 1950s in Sweden, but how is Matt Kemp's team approaching the challenge?
2: So the system that we're devising at the moment is is, is essentially a sophisticated gas exchange device that also gives us the ability to provide uh, medicines and nutrients and all the sort of supplements that we need to be able to maintain one of these fetuses. And then we sort of package all of that up inside a a reasonably uh, sophisticated Well, it's a plastic bag, really, I guess, but it's a little bit more sophisticated (laughs) than that. You're
0: trying to make a plastic bag sound sophisticated.
2: (laughs) Well, one of our graduate students said we had a lamb in a goon bag, and I think it's hopefully a bit more sophisticated than that as well. But that's, for all intents and purposes, what it is.
0: First, there's the replacement placenta, which delivers oxygen and nutrients to the growing fetus and gets carbon dioxide and other waste products out.
2: The artificial placenta that we're building really is, is Is mostly restricted performing that gas exchange function. It also gives us access where we can deliver all of these medicines and nutrients. So that's the most important part of the system. That's essentially two small blocks of plastic with some pretty sophisticated membrane technology in it. And we connect those to the umbilical cord uh, of the fetus. Uh, We do that in such a way that the fetal heart drives blood through the system.
0: So it's the workhorse of the artificial womb, you could say. Next, add an artificial
2: amniotic fluid. Essentially, it's an electrolyte solution with a few other bits and pieces thrown in for good measure. And that allows us to keep the lamb submerged. So the lamb remains underwater, I guess, if you will. So its lungs remain full of fluid. It helps suppress any respiratory drive. It also helps us to keep it nice and warm at a really stable temperature. That's really important. Uh, And free from infection as well. Which has been hard
0: because here we have effectively a hot bag of fluid. It's a perfect incubator for bugs. But in their early trials, which they published last year, the team compared the development of five lambs over a one-week gestation period in the artificial womb to lambs in their mother's uterus. By many measures, the lambs in the artificial womb appeared to be undergoing normal growth and development. Critically, though, they didn't look at brain or lung development.
2: The rationale really for that was that until you've got a system that, at a generic level, is going to allow for what we'd say is ostensibly the healthy development of these of these foetuses, doing more granular and complex analyses, there's probably not much point.
0: The melancholy duty at the end was euthanising the lambs they'd come to know. This early work of the Perth team and the team in Philadelphia taking a different approach with less premature lambs is encouraging, but an artificial womb for trials in human babies is a while off yet. But another wild frontier for the future of reproduction is 3D printing.
1: I think the printed uterus will be fairly quick.
0: This is Professor Teresa Woodruff joining me via Skype. And if I read all her titles to you, it would actually take me the best part of an hour. She's extraordinary.
1: Well, I think for this conversation, I'm the Watkins Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern. I'm the Division Chief for our Reproductive and Medicine Division in the Department of OBGYN. And my second title, really, uh, um, for this purpose, is Director of the Centre for Reproductive Science at Northwestern.
0: Oh, and a founder of the field of oncofertility, a term she coined addressing the infertility of girls and women who survive cancer treatment. And a Dean and Associate Provost and recipient of the Presidential Award for Excellence in science mentoring and with her colleagues co-developer of an artificial ovary ovaries which contain our ovarian follicles, which in turn contain our eggs, they're often damaged irreversibly after chemotherapy. Some women do have the option to cryopreserve their ovarian tissue before chemo, but prosthetic ovaries could be an alternative if they can't.
1: An ovary is really organs within an organ and women are born with a million of these follicles in our ovaries. And it's from this million follicle pool that every month during our cycle, there are selected unique follicles that begin a process of growth from dormancy to the point where these follicles can be ovulated and release a mature egg. And the fact we knew so little about how these follicles are selected and fundamentally why one follicle, when a woman is 19 and it's May, makes the decision, and I'll tell you, I anthropomorphize my follicles, but <laughs> makes the decision to begin that growth process. And the follicle sitting right next to it might not begin that journey for 10 or 20 or 30 more years really blew my mind. Yeah. And so we we, we just uh, don't know much about uh, our follicle biology. And that became something that was just a wonderfully attractive story story to me and that's how I got started. So
0: when did you start to think about engineering solutions to infertility? I gather it started with a conversation with an adjacent lab
1: right it did and part of it was because we had been growing follicles just like many other laboratories for years and years really trying to understand the fundamentals of the follicle and really failing to get anywhere by putting follicles on flat plastic the petri dish
0: although they have had big success over the years too her team was the first to ever show that you can grow follicles entirely outside of the human body to the stage where they ovulate a fully mature human egg that's big in IVF a woman has to take hormones to stimulate that process inside her body but back to the lab next door
1: and one of the labs near me had a brand new research faculty he had come in and was studying pancreatic islet cells with new materials and uh, he showed some of the materials that actually made little balls. And anytime time I see that, I think of follicles. So I went and I told him the problem we were trying to solve.
0: So the reproductive scientists and the biomaterials engineers got talking and learning each other's languages.
1: The real interesting part of the story is none of this would have, uh, we wouldn't have gone further, except for the very first time we did it, we um, just basically on a lab bench, Put a follicle into a big, huge piece of alginate, and it was very loose. It was not very rigid.
0: Alginate, a product of seaweed, the thickener in ice cream, can also be formed into gelatinous balls for medical uses.
1: And we called them little schmooze. They kind of had a, you know, they kind of were very gelatinous and kind of didn't maintain their full form. But we put that follicle in overnight. And then in the next couple of days, the follicles grew to a size that we had not seen in the Petri dish. So they were happy. They were happy. And in the end, if we had made a more rigid gel that first time, because again, this is just, you know, me walking across the street to the bioengineers um, layer. (laughs) And uh, if that hadn't worked, I don't know that we would have continued. But that very first uh, set of follicles I can still see in my mind because they just grew to remarkable sizes. And that just was an absolute lightbulb moment.
0: With the materials engineers, Teresa and colleagues then set about interrogating the internal structure of our ovaries, a very particular structure which allows follicles to develop and communicate with each other and to produce the hormones that drive our reproductive cycle, estrogen and progesterone.
1: And so we actually took all the cells away and actually for the first time really began to understand the skeleton of a soft organ.
0: That soft organ being an ovary. Then they used biocompatible collagen to 3D print artificial equivalents of that skeleton. Think of it as a kind of car park or nursery or perhaps a porous scaffolding to slot developing follicles into.
1: That's right. And when we put them in there, it turned out that the follicles liked, and again, I anthropomorphize, but they liked different angles. They liked to contact. They liked to have contact uh, with particular shapes.
0: So you had printed this little structure, this little ovary um, out of collagen. And then what did you do with it? It all started in mice.
1: Right. So we transplanted that back to mice who had been we sterilize them. We take the taken the ovaries out of those mice, and now we put into the transplant tissues that came from a mouse that had green fluorescent proteins in every cell. So the way we could determine that this was authentically from the uh, bioprosthetic is that the mice that were born from this functioning ovary had the green fluorescent protein expressed, and that represented then the Culmination experiment. It proved that, in fact, the bioprosthetic had been integrated; that the follicles had grown; that the egg had matured; that it had been ovulated into the fallopian tube, and that natural fertilization had taken place. Uh, And those are really the functional hallmarks that one would have to have in order to prove that you had a functional tissue. So when
0: you implanted the structure inside these mice who'd had their ovaries removed, the follicles inside the little prosthetic ovary developed, grew, they started producing the hormones that follicles do, progesterone, estrogen, they started working just like ovarian follicles do in a body. That's right. Did their eggs produced from these 3D printed ovaries that you put into mice. Yep. Yep. When when the mice mated with other mice as they yep. do, yep.
1: did those yes. eggs result in a pregnancy? Yes, it resulted not only in a pregnancy but in live birth. We were all just uh, really thrilled to meet those little baby mice, little baby pups, and were they okay? Were they healthy? They were all healthy and they themselves are fertile, uh, had no uh, at all problems. And uh, we still have great grandbabies of those pups somewhere downstairs. And so it's a very exciting and remarkable achievement saying that we can orchestrate not just a single follicle growing, but the follicles interacting in a way that they maintain uh, all of the biological functions of ovary through pregnancy.
0: So watch out for 3D printed artificial ovaries. They're working on creating inks for 3D printing out of actual ovarian tissue too. Not yet ready for clinical trials in humans, but that's what they're aiming for perhaps in four to five years. Professor Teresa Woodruff from Northwestern University. More on the Science Friction website. That's it for the Future Uterus series. Next step, a very weird story, the weirdest of all from the archives of Nazi science. You can talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Spread The pod. Catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts,
1: live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.